You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode 10, The Powers of Arda, in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss the second part of the Silmarillion, the Valaquenta. Welcome, listeners, to the Atmoot Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kenny Tallarico. I'm here, as always, with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm doing incredibly. No headaches today. Nice. We are, uh, y- yesterday uh, was when we recorded the Ina Lindeley episode. We're still in person. Sam was, uh, Sam was developing a migraine. But it did not occur. I took the right precautions during the beginning stages. Yes. Uh, so, and today apparently his, his head's feeling good. So today we're going to be talking about, like we said on the Ina Lindale episode, we are going to be discussing the Valaquenta, which is the second part of the Silmarillion. Like I mentioned on the Ina Lindale episode, the Valaquenta, it, it's subtitled Account of the Valar and Maiar According to the Lore of the Eldar. So we defined who the Valar and Maiar were on uh, the previous episode, uh, for a refresher, the Valar are the Ainur, who are like the the sort of pantheon. You can think of them as sort of angels or demigods who uh, who come. The, the Valar are the the subset of the Ainur who enter into Ea, the universe, after uh, creation and play a role in its governance. And the Maiar are sort of like their deputies. Uh, so each one of the Valar has some Maiar that are sort of its, uh, its helpers, basically. Um, and then it says, according to the lore of the Eldar, I also mentioned in, in the last episode that the Eldar are the, uh, are the elves. And so the, um, this is basically a history, it's supposed to have been, uh, as written and told by the elves in, in later ages. Uh, so... Everything, just like Lord of the Rings, everything that Tolkien is is writing here and in in all of his work is in universe written by uh, written by characters of his, right? So he has he J.R.R. Tolkien is uh, in in our world merely the conduit for these actual people who are writing the stories that he's telling. So uh, getting. Going talking about the the Valaquenta itself, uh, what it really is is just a list of all of the the Valar. I believe there's fourteen that are are listed here, and then you get into fourteen asterisks. There were fifteen, but there are fourteen. Yes, fifteen including Melkor, um, who does not count. Yes, and um, and then we also start to talk a little bit about some of the Maiar, some of the more significant Maiar, who we'll get into. But um, so of the Valar. You have here, it says, uh, The great among these spirits, the elves name the Valar, the powers of Arda, and men have often called them gods. The lords of the Valar are seven, and the Valier, the queens of the Valar, are seven also. These were their names in the elvish tongue as it was spoken in Valinor, though they have other names in the speech of the elves in Middle-earth, and their names among men are manifold. And this actually comes up in Lord of the Rings. There's actually a few references to, like, gods, which are, I believe, the um, the Rohirrim uh, say the name of a few, of maybe one or two Valar and um, Ainur, more broadly, uh, that are specifically like, their human names. Or, or more specifically, their names within the, the culture of Rohan and that language. So there's a lot of references to them outside that use different names, but within the Silmarillion, it's much more standardized. 
Yeah, and Sam, can you uh, explain what Valinor is? That's one of the things that it says here that um, that these were their names in the Elvish tongue as it was spoken in Valinor. Yeah, so Valinor was, and the reason that we're, we use the past tense here and, and will probably going forward is because uh, this is all supposed to have taken place in our world, just in the very distant past. So Valinor was a place, but Valinor was where the um, Valar lived. Uh, initially, when the world is created, it's a symmetrical disk, and everyone sort of lives in the middle. Uh, and then, due to a lot of stuff, which we'll go over in future episodes, it is uh, torn asunder, and the big continent to the west, across the seas, uh, from Middle-earth and the other continents, is uh, Valinor, where the Valar live, and initially, where a lot of the elves live. There is some movement back and forth of various elven groups between the two continents. This is... It, in large part, primarily what the rest of the Silmarillion is about. Um, and then at the end of the Second Age, Valinor is actually uh, rendered away from the world at large. Uh, and when the world is turned from a uh, flat plane to a spherical globe and Valinor is removed from it, but it still exists. And the only people who can then cross that are elves or ring bearers. That's right. Yeah, and you can imagine like, uh, you know, a person in uh, in Frodo or Bilbo's time in the Third Age who live in Middle-earth uh, sailing west, they'll eventually come to their their same continent again because it's a globe, just like our world. Uh, in, the, in, in the period before the Third Age, uh, if you sailed west, you would eventually hit Valinor. Hypothetically, although it was basically impossible and no one was allowed to live there unless they were immortal. Well, so that's actually part of the discussion in the in the Numenor story about Sauron. Yes, because it's that they they can live there if they're not immortal, but it's like forbidden. Yes, like it's they, not, they're not allowed to. Yeah, they're not exactly. They're not allowed to, which is one of the things that uh, that is one of the key things that was misrepresented to the kings of Numenor. Yeah. So um, any anyway, though that that's what Valinor is for the for in this time where we're talking about uh, before the first age even begins, Valinor is a is a physical place on uh, Arda, which at this point is a disc, like Sam said. Uh, if you've ever read Discworld by Terry Pratchett, it's sort of like that. Although not on the back of a, of a turtle or whatever. Yeah, yeah, not um, on the back of a turtle. So anyway, the, uh, he gives a list here of the... The f- also, we're just going to call all of them the Valar, because um, I think that that's usually what he does. I think he's just sort of saying the Valiar are the queens of the Valar, but he also specifically says that they don't they don't have sex or gender uh, because they're like gods. They kind of like they kind of like take on genders based on their vibes, and like so some of them are like have more f- traditionally feminine characteristics. But it's also worth noting that a lot of those like more traditionally masculine or fem- feminine characteristics aren't really innate to them, especially when we talk about appearance, because like at least in the metaphysics of it all, they don't really like have bodies. They can project out bodies and take on like sort of anthropomorphic human-esque forms. But these forms he refers to throughout the text as raiment, which is a sort of antiquated word for clothing, sort of between clothes and costume, uh, really like a formal costume. So their bodies and the way that projects out are really sort of like uh, costumes around this sort of metaphysical Maimonides-esque, or at least like conception of God, like our angels uh, incorporeal form. Yeah, actually in one of the final parts of the Analindale, which we didn't explicitly talk about uh, on uh, the last episode, 
is actually about this specifically. It says, quote, uh, Now the Valar took to themselves shape and hue, and because they were drawn into the world by love of the children of Iluvatar, for whom they hoped, they took shape after that manner which they had beheld in the vision of Iluvatar, save only in majesty and splendor. So I'll, I'll pause for a second and say that the children of Iluvatar are elves and men. So what that's saying is that the, the Valar are sort of mimicking what they saw as the shapes of elves and men when they take shape in, in the world. Because, and I should add to that, because their their biggest purpose is to sort of uh, create the world according to Iluvatar's sort of vague instructions and toolkit to make it habitable and nice for elves and men. And they don't know when elves and men are going to come, but they're awaiting their arrival, and they're trying to make it hospitable and pleasant and stop Melkor from destroying it. And Melkor specifically is pissed about this because he has a, a deep jealousy uh, regarding elves and men. That's right, yeah. Which builds continuously. So th- he then says, Moreover, their shape comes of their knowledge of the visible world rather than of the world itself, and they need it not, save only as we use raiment, and yet we may be naked and suffer no loss of our being. Therefore, the Valar may walk, if they will, unclad, and then even the Eldar cannot clearly perceive them, though they be present. But when they desire to clothe themselves, the Valar take upon them forms, some as of male and some as of female, for that difference of temper they had even from their beginning, and it is but bodied forth in the choice of each, not made by the choice, even as with us, male and female may be shown by the raiment, but is not made thereby. I also think it's worth noting that, the, and this is like not very important to the plot, but it's just a fun little tidbit that will also be, you know, especially fun to anyone out there who's at least a little familiar with Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, when he was earlier on a Maiar named Olamir, actually lost the ability to project a human or corporeal form through raiment because his powers of, of sympathy and empathy grew so strong that he appeared invisible to the elves he lived among for thousands of years, which is sort of a fun little plot thing. Because Gandalf is like one of these original Maiar, he only takes on the form of this old wizard, you know, tens of thousands of years into his lifespan. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so now, with all that out of the way, though, just that was the distinction between the Valar and the Valiar, but from here on forward, we're going to be calling all 14 of these characters the Valar. Uh, Sam, do you want to give their names? Yeah, the uh, names of the lords in due order are Manwe, Ulmo, Aule, Orome, Mandos, Lorien, and Tulkas. And the names of the queens are Varda, Yavana, Niena, Este, Vaire, Vonna, and Nessa. And I'm also definitely butchering some of those pronunciations. So any fans out there, if they want to tell us that we're wrong, we would love to hear it and correct our own pronunciations. That's right. And then the sentence right after that is uh, an, another epic burn. Melkor is counted no longer among the Valar, and his name is not spoken upon Earth. As you might expect, each of the, the Valar uh, have sort of varying levels of prominence in the stories that, that are contained in the Silmarillion, and have sort of uh, various roles, some of which are uh, some of which are much more, I guess, important to the, the cosmology of this universe. The three that I'm thinking of in particular uh, are, like we mentioned on the Ainulindale episode, uh, there are sort of there are there are Ainur that sort of are meant to represent each of the four traditional elements of fire, earth, water, and, and air. Uh, Melkor clearly was meant to be fire. The three that I'm thinking of are uh, Aule, who is sort of the craftsman god. He's representative of of the earth. Um, Manwe, who is 
considered like the chief of the Valar, and he is representative of the air and winds. And Ulmo, who is uh, whose domain is is, the, is water and the sea, he's very very Poseidon esque. Yes, but uh, more chill, distinctively more chill and zen out. Yeah, although people are everyone is still scared of him. Yes, but he's he's a good guy. Yeah, correct. Okay, so we're gonna kind of go one by one. Uh, and spend more time on the Valar that are more prominent and more important. And then, because the, there's a bunch of those that really only make an appearance here and then, like, never again. Uh, but they're still really cool. So, Sam, I think it's probably, uh, it probably makes sense to start off with, with Manway, I think. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, Manway, M A N W E with an umlau over the E, is, uh, he's considered the chief of the Valar. He is... The king of all the lords of all realms of Arda. That's right. He's a sort of god-like king of kings. Although he's not a god, the real king of kings is Luvatar. That's right. Um, and, and Manwe is, uh, like I mentioned a, a moment ago, also sort of representative of, of the air and the winds. He stands chief to all the big decisions that are made at councils, which does not mean that he doesn't take other, you know, uh, Eldar opinions into account, but he serves as the final word and final say. He also is specifically Lord of the Eagles. So to any Lord of the Rings fans out there who are like, why do the Eagles just sort of like do all this stuff? The Eagles are a sort of sentient magical creatures in the same general scale as Ents and Dwarves. They are specifically under the purview of, of Manwe. Manwe can like see and hear for thousands of miles like across the world. Uh, he lives in a giant uh, castle on top of the tallest mountain in Valinor, which is also the tallest mountain in the world. And it's way above all the clouds. And he can see like almost everything from this. But even that which he cannot see is brought to him forth by the eagles who sort of operate at his command. So in Lord of the Rings, it's not like the gods are directly intervening. They did send servants to intervene for them, which are, you know, Gandalf and Saruman and the wizards. Obviously, Gandalf is the only who really fulfills his cause. Um, but the eagles are also direct agents of Manway. I won't accept Radagast slander. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm actually with that. Radagast gets too slandered. Um, so... But so that that's Manway. He is the one. And we don't know what happened with the Blue Wizards. So yeah, Manway is the one who you see. I think the most of throughout the course of the Silmarillion. Arguably, he he's the one who is again. He's the chief of the Valar. So oftentimes you hear about like uh, when the Valar are making decisions, it'll be like you know, and Manway Manway decided th- this because he's you know sort of the ultimate decision maker. And also, it's worth saying here that uh, Manway and the first sentence of this paragraph here is Manway and Melkor were brethren in the thought of Iluvatar. So Manway is is in some ways Melkor's counterpart, although we discussed last time that Melkor is canonically uh, the smartest and the most powerful and, and, and all of that stuff. But um, they are Manway and Melkor do have some sort of link there. Uh, moving on, we're not going to talk about Varda, V-A-R-D-A. She is the Lady of the Stars, and uh, she's basically Manwe's wife. She's officially Manwe's wife. Yeah. Um, so she is, uh, so it says, Too great is her beauty to be declared in the words of men or of elves, for the light of Iluvatar lives still in her face. Uh, I love, it also says that... Um, out of the deeps of Ea, she came to the aid of Manway, for Melkor she knew from before the making of the music and rejected him, and he hated her and feared her more than all others whom Eru made, which is saying here that basically uh, Melkor, like all incels, hates the, hates the woman who rejected him and also fears her. Uh, she, she, she's actually 
per- perhaps the strongest persisting woman. Yes. And she also, I should also issue a little clarification earlier. I said that she, um, that, that, that Manwe season here is like ultra far. He sees ultra far if he's with Varda because she's sort of the Lord of like the universe, I guess, the That's stars. Right. He sees even farther and she hears farther than him. That's right. She has the best hearing of any being in the universe. Yep. And I think some of her other exploits and stuff we'll probably get into in later chapters, but this is sort of sitting her up. That's right. She yep. has a really prominent role in the very beginning. Yeah, and so, yeah, what you're referencing here, it says, When Manwe there ascends his throne and looks forth, if Varda is beside him, he sees further than all other eyes, through mist and through darkness and over the leagues of the sea. And if Manwe is with her, Varda hears more clearly than all other ears the sound of voices that cry from east to west, from the hills and the valleys, and from the dark places that Melkor has made upon earth. So... Uh, Manwe and Varda, their abilities as angelic beings uh, quite literally sort of complete each other. Uh, they can Manwe's sight is stronger when she's there and her hearing is stronger when when he's there. Uh, so they are they are um, they're sort of a they're sort of a power couple. And then also um, of all of the Valar, uh, Varda is the one who the elves most revere and love. And the next one up in order is Ulmo. Ulmo is the Lord of Waters. He is alone. He dwells nowhere long, but moves as he will in all the deep waters about the earth and under the earth. So the rest of the Valar all live together in Valinor. This is not the case for Ulmo. He's wandering around the seas. Um, That's actually super relevant to the plot. And I think the fact that he doesn't live with them is one of the reasons why he is oftentimes a sort of dissenting voice. Um, And throughout the Silmarillion, there will be decisions made where he's like, I don't know if this is a good one. And this is not to say that he's in any way not like a protagonist because he is. And there are actually instances where his dissenting voice or dissenting actions are like unequivocally the right thing to do. Um, and it also mentions that he uh, retains love for both elf and elves and men, which is the case for all of the Valar. But I think it's more so the case for him because he's sort of with them. Right. He's in the waters. He's in the streams. He's... It's implied that he's showing up for all the pivotal things that elves and men are doing throughout history. And that sort of relationship is very relevant. It's also relevant because he's feared. Although I will note that I think some of the fear of Ulmo is actually, if you read closer, a fear of his assistants. Because his two assistants who control specifically the tides and the coastlines are the ones who go crazy and cause shipwrecks, oh. and they have a sort of tenuous relationship. And they are they are uh, they are also angelic beings. They also Maiar, but they are not Valar. Right. And all of these uh, Valar have uh, assistants that show up in the story. Yep, that's right. Um, the other thing is uh, Ulmo. While I mentioned earlier that Manwe is, I think the the, the Valar who plays the most uh, prominent role just in general throughout these stories uh ulmo might i may be the one that actually makes the most like appearances he also is by far the one that actually interacts yeah. with elves and men the most by like a huge margin yeah like i i'm, I'm remembering like at the beginning of the, the story of the fall of gondolin he plays a big role yeah and uh so he also plays a big role like in the story of uh arendelle and all of that stuff yeah yeah huge role. um so yeah so, but that's that's ulmo and I, I i'd also say that um like sam mentioned uh ulmo is ulmo is terrifying but i think that it it, it represents uh he, he's he's both terrifying to to the children of Iluvatar and uh, sort of beautiful in a, in a in a profound sense, and I think that that is like 
definitely representative of like the ocean or the sea. So you kind of get that in this the, this passage. If the children of Iluvatar beheld him, they were filled with a great dread for the arising of the king of the sea was terrible as a mounting wave that strides to the land with dark helm, foam crested, and raiment of mail shimmering from silver down into shadows of green. The trumpets of Manway are loud, but Olmo's voice is deep as the deeps of the ocean, which he only has seen. Yeah, and he also, interestingly enough, is one of the ones who is single. Um, he's clearly, a batch. He's a well. He, I don't think he's an eligible bachelor though, because he likes to go solo. Yeah, he's know? just a, he's a batch. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a sort of chatted out sigma he, male. He's a volcel. Yeah, he's a volcel versus the, it's the uh, sort of incel Melkor versus the Chad Sigma uh, volcel Olmo. Olmo. That's right. That's right. Next is Aule A U L E Umlau over the E, of course. Um, we mentioned him earlier, just like how Manwe is sort of uh, wind and air, Ulmo is water, Aule is is earth. He's sort of the craftsman god, he one also, of the more rambunctious. He's yeah, he's he's the actually the most rambunctious and sort of. I think he probably has the most personality of all of the um, Valar. Not that they, I mean they they mostly all do to some extent, but he's very identifiable. He also so his domain is all of the earth all of the gems, all of the metals. He is the most responsible for creating the topography of Earth, different mountain ranges and continent masses and all that stuff. Uh, he's also the master blacksmith of all the world. He's well-intentioned and ultimately a good guy, but he is not as directly sort of on the straight and narrow as the rest of them. And he just sort of wants to build shit, you know? Yeah, and so just like what Sam was saying, this... Aule is the one who's where, where the the discussion of uh, of creation versus subcreation is the most relevant because uh, this last sentence of the Aule paragraph I think gives it away. The him in this sentence is referring to Aule. Melkor was jealous of him, for Aule was most like himself in thought and in powers, and there was long strife between them, in which Melkor ever marred or undid the works of Aule, and Aule grew weary in repairing and the tumults and disorders of Melkor. Both also desired to make things of their own that should be new and unthought of by others, and delighted in the praise of their skill. But Aule remained faithful to Eru and submitted all that he did to his will, and he did not envy the works of others, but sought and gave counsel. Whereas Melkor spent his spirit in envy and hate until at last he could make nothing save in mockery of the thoughts of others and all their works he destroyed if he could. Aule is, is just like Melkor, a, has, has the urge to be, I guess, creative and to create things. Uh, but Aule, speaking almost in, from a Catholic or Christian sense, Aule is creating all of his works to give glory to God, essentially, as Tolkien may have said. And even when he's not directly doing it to, to for that purpose, which which he is, but I think beyond that, he wants to build stuff because he enjoys it and yeah. finds it fun and loves the act of like forging a blade or building a mountain range. Exactly. And he is not tr doing it in pursuit of power or personal glory or personal enrichment. Although he does like to be complimented and all of that stuff, like it mentioned. Which, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. we all? Yeah, don't we all? But he, he, what it's really about is he just, like, enjoys doing it, and he's sort of like a, a, a as we said earlier, a rambunctious guy. But there's yeah. never ill will or malintent, and he's always willing to sort of act in the good of the team. That's right. Melkor creates, or sub-creates, although he would like it to be pure creation, to, uh, to assert power over things. And when it's, when it's, living things to assert his will 
over them. I also think something that we get here, going back to the sort of broader theme of this podcast, is even though Manwe is the chief of the Valar, their authorities are delegated with like an enormous degree of autonomy. And there's, you know, not to not to get too uh abstract with it but there's a there's a great degree of sort of like communal autonomous delegation and they're each entrusted with a lot of responsibility but their roles and their exact jobs aren't really overseen and although a lot of the valar collaborate collaborate on different tasks they there isn't like manwe is a boss in a sense but he's not really a boss in the conventional sense like he's not directing the exact mountain ranges that aule is supposed to make that's right, yeah. So next is one of our favorites, uh, Aule's wife, Yavanna. Yeah, she's she's epic. She's sort of the Jill Stein of the Valar in that she... <laughs> I, 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 she's more of the Rachel Carson. Sure, yeah, that's, that's less... Yeah. That's, that's nicer, because we like her. Yeah. Uh, she's a lover of all things that grow in the earth and all their countless forms. She holds in her mind from the trees like towers and forests long ago to the moss upon stones or the small and secret things in the mold. Yeah, and she, as you would expect, wears green, but she also mentions that she can basically take the form of a tree... And as you might expect from this, uh, she is like the sort of specific god and sub-creator of the Ents. And you might think this is funny because the dwarves and the Ents hate each other and the dwarves chop down the Ents and have no regard for living things, whereas the Ents are a sort of manifestation of nature. And part of the existing the existence of the Ents actually stems from a marital conflict between Yavanna and um, Aule, where she... Uh, once she finds out about the dwarves, she's like, oh no, my husband's creations are going to chop down all the trees and ruin shit. And they're like, okay, you also get a sort of protector of nature. Um, and I also really enjoy their specific dynamic because I think in a lot of Tolkien's mythos, uh, romantic relationships are presented with a sort of unrealistic degree of uh, smoothness. And that is not the case here, and there's some sort of funny conflict. That's right, yeah. I, I don't believe that's given in the Valaquenta. I think that's later. Yeah, yeah. but I, I was getting ahead of myself, but it just sets it up. Yes, I think they right. are a really fun duo. Yeah, they're great. They're, they're two of our faves, for sure. Um, Mandos and Lorian are introduced next, although their true names are Namo and Irmo, but we're going to call them Mandos. No Mando one calls them that. Yeah, we're going to call them Mandos and Lorian. Mandos, or uh, Namo, as no one calls him, uh is the keeper of the houses of the dead and the summoner of the spirits of the slain. He's the god of the dead. He sort of monitors the sort of, uh, it's not really an afterlife, but the place where souls go, uh, specifically souls of elves. Uh, the afterlife of men is never discussed, and it's explicit that it's unclarified and no one knows what happens, uh, besides Luvatar. And uh, Mandos is sort of comparable to uh, Charon in Greek mythology. And, and Hades, like, mixed together. Kinda. Yeah, and Hades mixed together. He is He's also sort of a Charon, you know. He's sort of grouchy. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um, he also, I think, has the single coolest line of any of the Valar in all of the Silmarillion. And we'll get there. Um, when a really hardcore message needs to be communicated by the Valar to elves who are not uh, being good, he is the one who does it. And he's explicitly portrayed as this, like, scary guy in cloaks and robes with a staff. And he's just sick. Yeah. And the halls, yeah, the halls of Mandos are sort of a, you know, it's death. They call him the Doomsman of the Valar. Uh, and it's also worth noting here, I want to get this out of the way really early because it'll make everything else for the next few episodes make a ton of sense. Doom in this context just means fate. 
Right. So he's the keeper of dooms. He, more than all of the other Valar, can predict the future. However, there's reasons, and we'll get into this later, why, later, why he isn't really at liberty to say this stuff. And But, like, there are events which happen which could have been prevented had he said this is what's going to happen. But for various reasons relating to Iluvatar, he can't really impinge on that role, but he can sort of see the future. Okay, and then, Sam, what about... Uh, his spouse? Uh, Vire. Yeah, Vire is also super, super cool. Uh, Vire is his spouse. She is Vire the Weaver, who weaves all things that have ever been in time into her storied webs and the halls of Mandos that ever widen as the ages pass are clothed with them. So she is the official chronologer of the history of everything. So the official ultimate history, the way that events are remembered by the gods is all handled by her. And I think it's sort of implied that she smooths out the actual passing of time. Because again, the passing, like the existence of time and chronology is created by Iluvatar. And like all, and this is not explicitly stated, but I believe one of her roles is to assist in that going smoothly and upkeeping time as a phenomenon. And then... Uh, again, weaving the histories of everything that ever was and ever happens. That's right. Yep. And then Mandos's brother is Lorian, uh, also known as Irmo. Lorian maintains uh, gardens that are the fairest of all places in the world in Valar. They're filled with many spirits. Um, He's the master of visions and dreams. Yes, that's right. Uh, and then his wife, Este, uh, also called Este the Gentle. Uh, she's sort of the healer. She She heals... Uh, it says she heals hurts and weariness. Uh, she dresses in gray. She provides rest. Um, during the day, she sleeps upon an island. Yeah, god of dreams and, and god of healing. That's right. So this says, From the fountains of Irmo and Este, all those who dwell in Valinor draw refreshment, and often the Valinor come themselves to Lorien, and there find repose and easing of the burden of Arda. So it's sort of like a... Uh, I, I guess... The, the Halls of Mandos are certainly not hell, but they're kind of like, they, they kind of... They're not supposed to be negative. They're not negative, but they give me kind of like a purgatory vibe. That, that's not fair either. The point I was making is that this is certainly supposed to be, it's not a it's not after death, but this is very much like the conception of a paradise, of Ir, where Irmo and, and Este dwell. Um, and Mandos is supposed to be sort of the counterpart to that. Yeah. Um, but it's, but not, it's not, you don't get there as a punishment. You don't go there as punishment. And it's also, it's not explicit here that you go, you would go to Lorien, um, after death at all. I don't, yes. I don't think that that's even part of no, this. No, it's not. So, um, now we're going to talk about Nienna, who is, uh, uh, probably, I think both mine and Sam's favorite. Yeah. Nienna is the most interesting, I think. And unconventional. So yeah, Nienna is the, is the sort of goddess of grief. Uh, she is the sister of the, uh, Fianturi. She dwells alone like Ulmo. She is acquainted with grief and mourns for every wound that Arda has suffered in the marring of Melkor. I'm going to keep reading verbatim right here. So great was her sorrow as the music unfolded that her song turned to lamentation long before its end, and the sound of mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it began. So she inserted or sort of conceptualized the idea of grief and sadness into existence, and she handles all of that. But she, uh, quote, but she does not weep for herself, and those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance and hope. Yeah, it's not a sort of resigned cynicism. It's taking stock in sort of, you know, it's like pity and empathy and sympathy and connecting with others and reflecting on the dead and reflecting on tragedies, um, but not, you know, letting it turn you to despair. I also do think that she, more than any other of the Valar, 
are sort of a reflection of Tolkien's life experiences. I could be reading too far into this, and this is also the type of exercise he specifically did not want his readers to do, but just knowing about the sort of depression um, and, and bouts of real sadness that he battled his entire life, explicitly featuring a character who's sort of a ma manifestation of that, but with the twist of turning it into hope and endurance, feels like a real insertion on his end, especially because this type of figure... Uh, compared to all the other ones, doesn't really feature in many mythologies, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Or, as, or aware. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, a lot of the other ones we've been giving sort of analogs in, in Greek mythology, but uh, yeah, I don't know of any others that are sort of like Nienna. I do also really like that rather than uh, going to the city of Valimar, where all is glad, that's, where, that's in Valinor. Um, it says she goes rather to the halls of Mandos, which are near to her own, and all those who wait in Mandos cry to her, for she brings strength to the spirit and turns sorrow to wisdom. That sentence makes me actually think more of Mandos as a sort of purgatorial sort of place. That's yeah. not it's not punishment, but the phrase those who wait in Mandos makes me think of it as a purgatory. Yeah, and I mean and it sort of is because if you're an elf who dies, you're kept there until the ultimate end of the world, which is also not really clarified because he had a set one and then got rid of it and it's a whole thing but yeah and so so she's the one though who sort of consoles the uh consoles those who are waiting in the halls of in the halls of mandos and my favorite is that she turns sorrow to wisdom and i'll i'll let you handle the next one our big boy Yes, okay. Chunky lad. Yes, okay. Next is uh, Tolkas, who uh, Sam is a huge fan of. I mean, I love too, but I just feel like, Sam, you're, you're a Tolkas fan yeah. from way back. And uh, also, he, he is surnamed Astaldo the Valiant, yes. which is great. And he is explicitly the most combat powerful and strong of he, all of them. He's the tank. Um, he's the sort of Goku... Superman, Monkey D. Luffy character. <laughs> uh, he came, so it says, he came last to Arda to aid the Valar in the first battles with Melkor. So he comes just because he's a strong Chad. Uh, yeah, and he comes after they've already started creating stuff. Like, there's the original set of uh, 14, one of them leaves, and then after they've already sort of got things started up, he goes over from the void because they need backup. Yeah, cause, exactly, because they, they need they, they need a tank. I'm gonna, so I'm going to read this description of him because it's, it's awesome, and uh, I hope that you, the listener, know uh, someone like this. Quote, He delights in wrestling and in contests of strength, and he rides no steed, for he can outrun all things that go on feet, and he is tireless. His hair and beard are golden, and his flesh ruddy. His weapons are his hands. He has little heed for either the past or the future, and is of no avail as a counselor, but is a hearty friend. Yeah, he's canonically stupid and uh, fights with his hands and uh, runs around in his bare feet and doesn't really do anything but fight. But yeah. he's a good guy. Well, his spouse is Nessa, and she also is lithe and fleet-footed. Deer she loves, and they follow her train whenever she goes in the wild, but she can outrun them, swift as an arrow, with the wind in her hair. In dancing she delights, and she dances in Valimar on leaves of never-fading green. Yeah, and she's sort of like, yeah, she's the, she's to a certain extent the god of animals. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, and in the same way that Yavanna is sort of the god of green things. Yes. Uh, they're both sort of the gods of, of nature. And now we have Orame, who's like the sniper. It says, describing him, Orme is a mighty lord. If he is less strong than Tolkas, he is more dreadful in anger. Whereas Tolkas laughs ever in sport or war, and even in the face of Melkor, he laughed in battles before the elves were born. Um, Orme, it says, loves the land of Middle-earth, and he left them unwillingly and came last to Valinor. After the world was split into, like, two halves, uh, Orme did not want to leave. 
Orome also plays a pivotal role in the beginning of the elves uh, saga. He is the one who spots the elves and realizes that they've been brought into the world. And he takes on the form of a sort of the hunter god, which is a sort of cliche trope in like a lot of religions and mythologies. And he patrols the forest and he hunts. Uh, he hunts game, but he also specifically hunts the enemies and agents of Melkor. And well into the First Age, after the rest of the gods are hanging out in Valinor, besides Ulmo, uh, he will go over and just run around shooting down uh, the agents of Melkor with his giant bow. Slight correction to earlier, he's also kind of interventionist like Ulmo. Yeah, he is. Um, and then his wife is Vanna. Uh, also known as the Ever Young, and she is the younger sister of Yavanna. Uh, it says, All flowers spring as she passes and open if she glances upon them, and all birds sing at her coming. I don't, I think that might be all that's really ever said about her. Okay, so that's all 14 of the, of the Valar. Um, it talked about sort of in, in, in different, uh, and in different lengths, but, um, I think I, a couple things that I noticed while I was reading that. The first was that, like, Basically, like, four or five of the Valar specifically love, like, plants and trees. There's not just, like, one Valar who's devoted to green things. Like, the chief of them would be Yavanna. Like, she's the one that's most prominent that's devoted to, like, nature. But several of the others, basically, like, all of the ones that are feminine uh, are devoted to various facets of nature and, 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 and wildlife, as well as a, a few of the, the masculine ones as well. Um, and so that's significant in just knowing his, uh, uh, his environmentalism and um, his green thumb, I guess. Yeah. And now we can briefly cover a few of the Maiar who are mentioned here. Uh, the first off the bat are the two assistants or vassals of Ulmo, and these are Ose and Uinen. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Ose and Uinen. And Ose is the master of the seas that wash the shores of Middle-earth. So he's the god of the coastlines of Middle-earth. And he's like sort of explicitly stated as like, he's like a dick. He loves the winds of Manway and starting up storms and laughing around ships or crashing into the rocks. And his spouse is Uinen. The main two others we need to talk about are Melian and Aloran. Yes. Okay, now we're going to talk a little bit about two of the Maiar who are more important across the, the story, uh, one of whom is extremely important uh, through in Lord of the Rings, of course. Um, so we have Melian. Melian is the name of a Maya who served both Vanna and Este. You'll recall that uh, Este is the one who uh, is the wife of Lorien, who just sort of chills on that island in, like, the paradise area. And tends to it. And tends to it, right. And, um... And is sort of like the healer. Yeah. And Vana is... Dances around and makes all the plants and animals have a good time. Vana is Tolkas's uh, spouse, basically. Who, like him, does not seem to have much of a care in the world. Yes, right. And so Melian is, sort of serves these two, these two uh, ultimate chilling girl bosses. And uh, it says, She dwelt long in Lorien, tending the trees that flower in the gardens of Irmo, ere she came to Middle-earth. Little little preview of what happens later there. Yes, Melian is a Maya who becomes a, a really important character in the Quenta Silmarillion. Yeah, uh, and, and that, also it says Nightingale sang about her wherever she went, and that's very relevant. Even there's references in, of that into Lord of the Rings. That's right, yep. And now, uh, our favorite part, or our fa one of our favorite characters, of course, wisest of the Maiar was Olorin, O-L-O-R-I-N. He too dwelt in Lorien, but his ways took him often to the house of Nienna, and of her he learned pity and patience. And then a little bit later, 
uh, of, speaking about the Quintessil Marillion. Of Oloran, that tale does not speak, for he, though he loved the elves, he walked among them unseen or in form as one of them, and they did not know whence came the fair visions or the promptings of wisdom that he put into their hearts. In later days, he was the friend of all the children of Iluvatar and took pity on their sorrows, and those who listened to him awoke from despair and put away the imaginations of darkness. Because he becomes Gandalf. That's right. Oloran is uh, later known as Gandalf the Wizard. So, you know, you get the context reading this uh, in the Valaquenta that Gandalf is like a cosmically very important figure in... Um, in the entire cosmology, which you don't, you know, you you can miss that, I think, in Lord of the Rings. You get the sense that he's a powerful guy, but you don't get the sense of, like, how important he is. It says he's literally the wisest of the Maiar, which is, like, he is, like, literally not only an angel, but almost, like, kind of like a chief among the angels, sort and of. And it's also worth, and I think that him not bringing any of this up, and it not being brought up really in Lord of the Rings, is pivotal to his character, because his wisdom comes from him, like, canonically being the most, like, with the children of Iluvatar, empathetic and sympathetic and communicative creature in the world. Yeah. And so, naturally from that, he will not have an ego. He won't, like, flex around a lot, unless it's, like, absolutely necessary. Um, so these things wouldn't really come up. That's right. And and it's also uh, it's also relevant, I think. This is not us explaining after the fact, like, something that Tolkien sort of came up with, like, after Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, like, Olamir predates Gandalf's introduction to the story by decades. Yeah, right. Like, Tolkien knew, if not while he was writing it, but, like, contemporary with it, that Gandalf was the same character as Oloran. The, 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 like, the reason why Oloran was taken over is specifically because... When uh, they were sending over their agents to Middle-earth to deal with the growing threat of Sauron, they needed at least one who was, like, not the, necessarily the strongest, but, like, the most reliable. And he had the record as, like, the biggest friend to the children of Iluvatar of, like, any being out there. So he was the, the safest bet. That's right. Um... So then at the very end of the story, the last thing, or the, la the very end of the Valaquenta, the last thing that we get is that uh, for the most of the rest of the book, Melkor is going to be called Morgoth because that is the name that the elves give to him. And so just like it said, the name Melkor is not spoken upon earth. Uh, that's true because the all of the children call him uh, Morgoth. Um, so that's the Valaquenta. We talked about the the fourteen uh, the fourteen Valar plus a few of the Maiar plus uh, Melkor, who we also talked about quite a bit in the in the previous episode. Uh, it's uh, just like the Annalindale. It is short. It's my copy is like seven or eight pages. Um, so uh, that is all I really have to say. Is there anything else you want to? I think it's all good for me, also. Okay, great. And I know we, we didn't do a ton of analysis or anything on this episode, but uh, this is, I think, important context. Uh, you know, feel free to revisit this episode if later we're talking about Valar and you think, like, who the heck is that? Uh, because it's it's easy for us to forget, too, sometimes. Yeah, yeah some of them are, are harder to remember than others. L especially the ones that aren't, like, the chiefs. Like, I remember the ones that are the most important, but then sometimes the more minor ones make an appearance. A lot of the Valar have, like four character names and sometimes I just get them mixed up even one so I know who they are so feel free to revisit this or just like google the character and it'll it'll pop up um so I guess that's it for for this episode um we're gonna be moving into the Quintessil Morellian next so stay tuned for that Sam as always it's been great recording and listeners we will talk to you next time bye bye bye
podcast is co-hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tallarico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tallarico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.